perhaps the biggest liberation of slaves in all of history, the Exodus. But did the Exodus really happen? Are the stories of a villainous pharaoh and snakes and plagues and millions of people crossing the Red Sea with walls of water on either side actually history? Or are they legendary metaphors of God being the great rescuer? If ever there was someone to knowledgeably explore these ideas, it would be a Christian archaeologist. And that's exactly who we have joining us today on Theology on Air. Theology on Air. I am Sarah Stone, Outreach Director for Young Adults at MDPC, and uh, one of your hosts for today's show. Of course, I'm joined by Evan McClanahan, pastor at First Lutheran. Um, and today's special guest, who has become kind of a regular figure here at Theology on Air, uh, is Ted Wright. He's the founder and executive director of EpicArchaeology.org. And he's not just going to be talking about this stuff. He's been on the ground conducting archaeological research in Israel and Turkey. And today's topic is one of his babies. It's one of his core passions as it kind of dovetails with his love of defending the scientific reliability of the Bible. So hello, Ted. How are you? Doing great. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Um, for those of you that may be joining us for the first time, Theology on Air, of course, is... Um, it was born out of Theology on Tap, which is a ministry to young adults in Houston, where we talk about all kinds of fascinating philosophical, cultural, theological, biblical ideas, all while drinking delicious craft beer. And you may be listening on the radio on the HD2 station for KPFT. If you are, um, thank you. And feel free to go to kpft.org to learn more about giving because it is, of course, listener-sponsored community radio, which means we don't have to have commercials. Um, but okay, today we're going to be talking about this idea of the Exodus. The Exodus is kind of the big event in the Old Testament. It gets talked about a ton in the Old Testament. Um, I know that there have been various believers recently that have walked away from their faith and said, well, we can't believe some of these big stories from the Old Testament. One of the big ones, of course, is this idea of the Exodus. Moses taking millions of people out of slavery and the whole, like, let my people go to Pharaoh and crazy plagues and all of that kind of stuff. But um, it seems that the majority of biblical scholars and archaeologists today may be saying that the Exodus, at least the way we understand it, didn't really happen. I don't, Ted, talk to us about why that is. Yes, yeah, Sarah, that is a, a great question and or a great, uh, you know, way to sort of introduce this, this topic. And that is that uh, it started out actually, my, my quest to discover the answer for this uh, started out when I was an undergraduate student in archaeology and I I sort of grew up believing the story and, 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 you know, not taking any, any kind of questions about it or not, not questioning it at all. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got into uh, my classes in archaeology until I began to discover that most archaeologists and scholars don't believe that the Exodus actually happened. Hmm. And uh, even among uh, many evangelical scholars, there's uh, some skepticism, not all of them, but many of them. Um, and there's a reason for that, uh, for uh, several reasons, actually. And one of them is that uh, the stories in the, in the Exodus, many of them uh, contain miracles, uh, such mm -hmm. as the parting of the Red Sea that you mentioned, you know, the sending of the plagues and Moses' staff turning into a serpent, things like that, snakes and all this kind of thing. So these stories are, are really, uh, you know, fraught with miracles. And so many scholars uh, are very, they have a very strong naturalistic uh, leaning. So they discount the story and, uh, and they have a very low view of the scripture itself. So there's a sort of anti-supernaturalistic bias going on, but then also 
there's a view that the text is actually not giving us accurate history itself, that the, that the biblical text was, was actually cobbled together later, much later than when the Exodus was purportedly uh, written in, w in which it's purportedly happened. Okay, so do you think beyond the sort of naturalistic bias, do you think that any of these naysayers have any good evidence to the contrary, though, that, that the Exodus didn't happen? Like, do they have some sort of archaeological aha gotcha? Well, you know, not really, actually. It's more of an argument from silence. It's more of a, uh, yeah. there's, there's sort of a, an axiom, a sort of a, a saying, uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Hmm. Um, and there's a really good scene that sort of illustrates this in the movie, in the first Indiana Jones movie. Uh, I've got to reference that, of course. Yes. <laughs> but uh, so Indy, Indy and, his, and his sidekick, Sala, they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, the Germans are wanting to find it first. And uh, they go to the, to the location and they, they, they recognize that the Germans are digging in the wrong place. Uh, so they're not going to find it. And so hmm. something like that's going on with the Exodus except that scholars are looking for the Exodus in the wrong time. They, they say, well, the Exodus, if it occurred at all, must have happened in this date. So when they look at that date, they don't find the evidence for it. I'm like, well, exactly, because it's not there. You're not going to find it. Okay, so I love that illustration. So in the same way that Indy had to dig in a different spot, you're suggesting that maybe we dig in a different time. Tell us more about that and why you think that's evidence that it happened. Yes. So, so there's a couple of different uh, uh, lines of reasoning why we, why I believe that if we're going to find evidence for the Exodus, uh, one of them is in the internal text of the Bible itself. Uh, a, a verse in First Kings chapter six, verse one. It's a, it's actually a date, and it says in the 480th year after the Exodus, Solomon, the son of David, laid the foundation of his temple in Jerusalem. And most scholars, including liberal scholars, uh, would put that date at about 966 or 967 BC. So when you do the simple math of 480 before 480 years before that, that will put you at a, an Exodus date of approximately 1446. So now we have a very a good date in which we can actually look at Egypt to see if there's actually evidence for the Exodus. And what we see is quite remarkable. There's some really remarkable evidence. Uh, primarily in the middle of, uh, of Egypt's 18th dynasty, uh, during the right actually in the, during the reign of a pharaoh by the name of Amenhotep II. And his father was a pharaoh by the name of Tutmosis III, which is interesting because Moses, of course, is, uh, is sort of an Egyptian name as well. Oh, yeah, I guess I didn't make that connection. Okay, so you're suggesting that if we go digging in the right spot, sort of uh, timeline-wise, we go back earlier than people have formerly thought the Exodus happened. And if we do that, of course, the next logical question for me to ask you is, is there any archaeological evidence for that once you go yes. back? Yes, quite a, quite a bit, actually. Uh, in the past, I will say in the past... Um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. I may be wrong. It's not exact uh, idea here, but in the past, I want to say 15 or 20 years, um, the uh, the evidence and the pieces of the puzzle of the Exodus have really come together, and now we can see very likely where the Israelites were located, where the Exodus actually took place out of, and, uh, and specifically, there's a place in the Nile Delta, which if you look at a map of the Nile, the Nile Delta fans out to the north, uh, up into the Mediterranean. And it's on, the, uh, it's on the eastern branch of the Nile Delta. There's a city called Avaris. And the Arabic name, the archaeological name for that site is called Tel Eldaba. And that site has been excavated for uh, well over 20 years by an Austrian archaeologist by the name of Manfred B. Tack. 
And um, what BTAC discovered there is a very large presence of non-Egyptian slave force. These mm -hmm. are Asiatics, people who, for, who essentially came from Canaan. And it doesn't stop there. There's, there's quite an amazing amount of evidence. In fact, there's one, uh, one particular thing that was discovered there that is just completely fascinating. And it dates approximately during the time uh, of Joseph, when we know, of course, Joseph went down into Egypt. Uh, Actually, let me let me pause you there for a second, so that if someone that's listening sure. that's maybe new to Christianity and was like, "Whoa, you're saying all these things," give us, or Evan and I can too, but give us just like the what what in the biblical account got people even into Egypt, where they would have then been enslaved, and then they would have had to be pulled out of. Do you want to do that, or do you want me or Evan to do that? Sure, sure, I can do that. Okay. So, uh, so basically, in, in the Bible, in the, in the book of Genesis. There's a story about uh, these brothers. That, it was a father who had some sons, and he had one son that he really liked more than the other sons. His name was Joseph. You may have heard of this story, the, the coat of many colors, you know. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he played favorites with his, with his son, Joseph, and his brother sort of resented him. And so one day, uh, when he went out to his brothers to meet them, uh, they plotted to either kill him or do something really bad to him. So what they ended up doing is they ended up throwing him into a cistern, a, a basically a well, and uh, he ended up, left him for dead, and they brought the coat back to the father and told him that, that a wild animal had killed his son, so his dad's name was Jacob, and they were very, very, he was very sad. And so it, what ends up happening is that uh, slave traders actually discovered Joseph down in this well, and they, he ended up going to Egypt as a slave and ended up in, uh, in this uh, household of an Egyptian, uh, Egyptian official by the name of Potiphar, and uh, apparently Joseph was a good looking guy and Potiphar's wife sort of took, uh, <laughs> took a, a liking to him, shall we say. And uh, she wanted him to uh, go to bed with her. Uh, he wouldn't do it. So he was thrown into prison, but God had favor on him in prison. And he ended up, um, he ended up actually uh, telling, uh, interpreting dreams. So the Pharaoh had these dreams and he couldn't understand what the dreams were. So somebody said, hey, there's this guy named Joseph, this, this slave. He's down in the prison, so why don't you get him? So, so they got him up. Joseph came, and he actually interpreted the fair's dreams. And one of the dreams that he had was that there's going to be a great famine in the land and that you should actually prepare for this great famine. So the Pharaoh was so, uh, was so uh, grateful for Joseph's mm -hmm. dream interpretation that he ended up making him the second-in-command of Egypt. So he was – in fact, we know that. There's actually a technical Egyptian term for that called a vizier. Yeah, so, if uh, anyone's ever seen Aladdin, Jafar is the Grand Vizier. You remember? That's right. But he's a bad one, and Joseph was a good one. Continue. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. So, so the date, just to give you an idea, uh, it says that's the basic story. Historically, we believe that Joseph and Jacob entered into Egypt, according to this chronology that we're talking about, in about the year 1876 BC. So this would have been approximately, let me get my glasses here because I can't remember the name of this pharaoh. Uh, there's actually a pharaoh by the name of, um, let's see here, a pharaoh Amenemes II. This is uh, approximately, uh, well, Joseph probably came to Egypt in 1899, and then uh, his imprisonment was under Sesostris II. Again, the reason why I can mention these dates is because if we know the dates, we know the pharaohs, and we can see who the pharaohs were. And we can see their reigns and how they actually correspond to the, to the plagues and how they correspond to the famines and things like that. So that's how the Israelites ended up in Egypt. And uh, so if they came to Egypt in 14 uh, or in 1876 and they left in 1446, then that also matches what the biblical account says of that they were basically slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Technically, it was 430 years. 
So, uh, so the dates actually match very well. So, so to answer your question, I think that answers your question, but that's yeah. how the Israelites ended up in Egypt to begin with. And so it was, there, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it was a positive relationship at first, right? And, mm-hmm. and then over time, it, it soured. And, and in Exodus, you get the impression it's because, well, the mm-hmm. Hebrews were having more babies and there could have been some. What, what was the concern with that, really? Was it that, you know, all of a sudden you have more Israelites than Egyptians and maybe another, you know, army could come in and use the Israelites as, as uh, military or, or what? Yes, that's a great question, Evan. And uh, that, that also plays into a, another concept mm-hmm. in Egyptian history. Uh, so, uh, there's a, there's a word that, that I want to just put out there and it's the word M-A-A-T and it's, it's pronounced ma'at and, uh, it, the, the concept of ma'at in Egyptian, uh, culture was very, very important. In fact, ma'at was a goddess. Uh, it, uh, the hieroglyphic symbol for ma'at was a feather truth. It symbolizes truth. It symbolizes righteousness. It symbolizes order. And so, uh, there, there's always forces that, of chaos that are trying to prevent uh, order from actually settling in Egypt. So one of the jobs of the Pharaoh, his main role was to keep order. And if he couldn't keep order, then he would be condemned in the afterlife. So, so there had to be this continual uh, watching of this. So, so the slave force, uh, that would be one of the things in which would pr- probably uh, pr- provide a counterbalance to the Egyptian power. So they wanted to make sure that the slaves were kind of kept in check and uh, so that's probably why they would have um, would have issued the decree to kill the firstborn. So uh, so because they had to keep order, and this idea of order actually figures into the Exodus as well. Okay, so you have Joseph there. Everything is great. He's number two. He's Pharaoh's guy. But then you fast forward a few hundred years. Different pharaohs have happened, and now you have a pharaoh that is not happy to have all these Israelites there. Maybe they're outnumbering them, and there's a there's a an edict or whatever that goes out from the Pharaoh saying these Hebrew babies need to get killed uh, because they're going to outnumber us. Right. And so they start saying that all the, at least the boys need to be thrown into the Nile, which is just horrifying, obviously. And that's where we find the story of Moses starting, right? Because his mom is sneaky and puts him in the basket in the Nile. And I know you have something to say about uh, the, the lady that pulled him, well, you know, pulled him from the Nile and helped raise him. Tell us about that. And we'll spare people the, uh, the graphic that would come. <laughs> I've seen it. It's not great. She doesn't look so hot. Yeah. Well, she's mummified. So, you I mean, you wouldn't look so hot either if you were mummified. Um, hurtful. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, not sorry. But it's true. Anybody mummified is not going to look good. But anyway, <laughs> what I'm going to say is, uh, let me say a word about Moses' mother, Jochebed. What a great name. Uh, she actually, interestingly, uh, and I think, Sarah, you and I have talked about this before, separately in a different thing on different contexts but but uh, the word ark the only other place it's used mm-hmm. outside of the story of the flood is when moses mother makes an ark it's mm-hmm. the, the hebrew word is actually translated as basket but the word is actually ark it's the same word that noah uh, and his family the, the the structure that they built that they survived the flood so so it was it was an act of faith in moses mother's part to actually uh, place him in the basket it was sort of a God, remember what you did. You saved Noah and his family from the flood. So please save my son. So it was a really cool thing that she did. It was a woman of great faith. It's really cool. I love little connections like that in the Bible that you can discover after like 40 years of studying it. And you're like, oh, this is new. It's cool. It's very cool. And so so what we believe, again, according to the chronology, and let me say a word about archaeology and history. And um, so there's a lot of my friends, and I'm an archaeologist. And so uh, a lot of my friends, and I like physics and science, but a lot of my very 
uh, mathematical friends and logical friends, they want 100% certainty and knowledge about archaeology or history, but you're just not going to get it. And, and archaeology and history doesn't work that way, but it works in a cumulative case. So, uh, so it is circumstantial evidence, what I'm, what I'm about to say, but it is based in really solid history. Uh, the, if the chronology is right, then this scenario, what I'm about to share, will actually make perfect sense. So we're talking about Moses being placed in the Nile, and according to the time that we're looking at, there was, a, there was an Egyptian princess. She would have been a, probably a teenage girl at the time, and we actually know quite a, quite a lot about her. She's probably one of the most well-known, apart from Cleopatra, she's probably one of the most well-known Egyptian princesses in the history of the world, and her name is Hatshepsut. It's, uh, so think of three syllables, hat, like a hat, Shepsut, Hatshepsut. And uh, we know quite a lot about her. And what's interesting, Sarah and Evan, is that uh, after the Exodus, we, somebody in, uh, in Egypt actually went around all around Egypt and they effaced all of her monuments. They, they tried to chisel out her name. That is really significant because, mm. number one, if she was the one to pull Moses from the Nile, she would have, she would have been the one, she would have been the, one of the main reasons why some of the catastrophes happened in Egypt. Yeah. Um, now, I haven't mentioned the fact that it was her stepson, Tutmosis III, who would have very likely grown up with Moses and uh, in, 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 Egyptian, in uh, Pharaoh's household. Uh, it's, it's sort of, I have a chart when I talk to this, when I talk about this to churches and the chart, I, I tell people it's sort of like a, you guys will get this analogy, but it's sort of like a Jerry Springer episode, you know? Uh, it's like her mother and her son. And so basically uh, some of these people had to marry like their half sister and they had kids and they had like a, a primary wife and a secondary wife. And they, so essentially had to do with inheritance though. Uh, but uh, so uh, let me cut to the chase and explain how this all figures in a Hatshepsut. So basically, her, uh, she was the primary wife uh, of, of uh, Tutmosis II, and he died prematurely, but they had a son together, or actually they had a son from, he had a son, they had a son, he had a son from a, um, from a secondary wife, a, a concubine. So basically, it was Hatshepsut's stepson. His name was Tutmosis III. So he was only like one or two years old when his father died, so she had to reign in his place. She had, so basically, there was a co-regency of Tutmosis III and Hatshepsut for about 20 years. And she, she built monuments. She built this incredible mortuary temple at Deir el-Bari in the, in the Valley of the Kings. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, she built all these really great projects, and she presented herself as a male pharaoh. And that's why after the Exodus, all of her stuff is erased all over Egypt. Uh, and so some scholars uh, surmise that it was either Tutmosis III or perhaps Amenhotep II who tried to erase her name off of all the monuments of Egypt. And, and, and uh, just to clarify, Amenhotep, however you say it, the second, is the pharaoh that you think was the pharaoh at the time of the Exodus. So yes. it makes sense that he would want to go back and deface the name of this person that like brought all this trouble to them in the first place. Right. And this is not just a matter of uh, like, you know, you go into your yearbook and mark a natural boyfriend, like, oh, I hate him, whatever. <laughs> This in, in, in ancient Egypt, if you you chiseled your name on stone, you're in order to have to live eternally, your name would be chiseled. That's why they chisel these things in granite, and and they wanted them to last forever. So uh, your mm. your memory and your ka, your your spirit, according to the Egyptian cosmology, would live forever as long as your monuments would endure. Mm. Uh, but if so, by chiseling out her name, they're trying to erase her memory and her soul from existence. So it's wow. it was kind of. A, it was a big slam. Yeah. That's fascinating though, man. Okay. Evan, did I see that you had a question or should I no, no, no. continue no, no. along? Okay. 
I know you mentioned earlier this whole thing about this place called Avaris, uh, the Israelites settling in Egypt initially. Um, the Bible says they were in Goshen. Where is that in Egypt? And do we have any evidence that the Israelites were there? And, and why does that matter? I know you want to talk a little bit about this. So, Yes. So it matters because um, we, we want to know exactly if we're going to look for archaeological evidence for the Exodus, then we should see some kind of material evidence for that because archaeology at the end of the day is uh, an analysis and a study of material artifacts. Uh, a lot of people get archaeology and paleontology confused. You know, hey, you like dinosaur bones, and I do like dinosaur bones, <laughs> but they're not archaeology. Archaeology, we study human artifacts and human remains. So if we're if there is a if there is a historical exodus, then we are going to find uh, material artifactual remains of the exodus and where the Israelites were located. So I mentioned Navaris, and I mentioned that it was excavated by the Austrian archaeologist Manfred B. Tack, and um, Let's go back and, and I'll, I'll tell you a few things he discovered. So he discovered this large Asiatic settlement and uh, in the particular kind of, it's interesting, they found these middens and a midden is sort of a pile of bones. These are like, it's kind of like a trash pile. And what's interesting about this trash pile is that the majority of these bones are actually uh, kosher animals. In other words, they're very, very few pig bones, which means that uh, people that are living there are following some kind of special diet. Uh, now, again, this is before the Mosaic Law, but it is interesting, uh, interesting hmm. connection. And then also, there's a particular kind of architectural building called a four-room house, and we can see the layout of this house. And one interesting thing about this is that we see this in Avaris in 1446, and about the ninth year of the reign of Amenhotep II, the site becomes abandoned. In other words, it just, it's people, whoever's there, they're gone. They just disappear. And these four-roomed houses appear in Canaan. So they travel, they go from, mm -hmm. we see them down in Egypt. They don't appear again in Egypt until, well, in fact, they disappear. And then they go up into, into Canaan. And we see this, this uh, forum style architecture actually go up in Canaan. But there's more, there's, there's even more stuff. Well, he also discovered around the time, a little bit after Joseph, there was a palatial complex at Avaris that contained, get this now, uh, this huge palace complex, and it had a very, very large portico, which is a lot, like a porch. And uh, you know how some porches have these columns? Well, in this portico, in this palace complex, there were 12 big columns, 12, mm -hmm. which we know, of course, there are 12 sons of Jacob. And then uh, there are 12 tombs. And one of the tombs is actually larger than the other, other 11. And in the, in the entryway, it's actually a small pyramid. So whoever was buried in this, was a very important person, and there was a statue found in this thing. In fact, is this this statue is actually uh, mentioned in the documentary film uh, Patterns of Evidence. So if you guys have seen that, you can actually see it, and I actually have a photograph of it. I could show people later if they want to see it. But anyway, uh, according to the chronology, uh, it very likely could be a statue of Joseph. And here's the interesting thing about that: that about the time that Hatshepsut's monuments were defaced, this statue was also defaced as well. Oh, wow. Statue of what we think is Joseph. And also, uh, there was not a body found in the tomb uh, as well. So, so basically, the site becomes abandoned. Uh, one more thing about Avaris as well is not only were there Israelites, we believe Israelites were there, uh, the Pharaoh also had his, uh, his chariot bases based at Avaris as well. That's where his chariot, many of his chariot forces, there actually was a workshop hmm. the archaeologists discovered where they actually created uh, weaponry, where, like spears and bows and arrows, things like that. And that site also becomes, again, abandoned 
at about the ninth year of the reign of Amenhotep II. It just disappears. So, um, so this, is, this is consistent with what we'd expect to find of an exodus. One more little quick thing about, about Amenhotep II. So in the 18th dynasty of Egypt, anybody can look this up. You can look it up on like uh, Wikipedia or whatever. Just look up 18th dynasty. You can see all the pharaohs of the exodus, or all the pharaohs rather, and all the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty, they had their royal palace in Thebes way to the south. So if you look at a map of Egypt, it's Thebes is in the south. There was only one pharaoh who actually had his palace way up in the north in Memphis, right below Avaris, and that was Amenhotep II. Hmm. And not only that, he also had his, um, he had a, pa uh, a uh, royal uh, palace section in Avaris as well, so he could actually visit. So we know that if Moses and Aaron were at Avaris, then this would have given uh, accessibility to Amenhotep II to have these dialogues about uh, letting his people go. Hmm. So I, I want to ask kind of just, I mean, it's, actually, you might have just answered it, but I was curious, when most people think of Egypt, they think of pyramids, and they might know where Cairo is, maybe. Right. Um, so I was, I was curious as to whether there's any, I mean, very basic question, but did the Israelites help build the pyramids? A lot of people just assume that because it's like, oh, hundreds of thousands of slaves and the pyramids, they must go together. And is that where they were or they, they were somewhere else or what? Um, but no, the answer is no, because the pyramids are way too early. Okay. They're way too early. Uh, and, uh, but there is evidence. Uh, this also, there's so much, this is a huge subject. Uh, so going back to when the Israelites would have been in Egypt, uh, under Joseph, he would have been the vizier. So we know from looking at Egyptian history of the times of which, of when the Israelites would have been there, they would have been involved in uh, irrigation projects. Uh, we see this all throughout Egypt. Uh, we also see that they would have been involved in, of course, making bricks. You know, we see that later in Moses' day, making bricks without straw. In fact, interestingly, at Avaris, I have a friend of mine, an archaeologist friend, who actually uh, sent me a photograph. Uh, they have actually discovered a wall at Avaris. Uh, at the time of about approximately the time of the Exodus that was made with bricks without straw and mm -hmm. mud bricks with no straw. So uh, again, it's just archeological direct confirmation. One other thing they did, uh, the Israelites did, and, and this is another interesting thing that's actually on patterns of evidence. And actually on my Epic Archeology span YouTube channel, we did an interview with Dr. Doug Petrovich. And there are these inscriptions that are found in the Sinai Peninsula uh, known as the Proto-Sinaitic inscriptions. What, are, what is that? Well, these are, uh, these are in a turquoise mine. So we believe the Israelites were actually going into the Sinai Peninsula and mining turquoise for the Egyptians because we know the Egyptians actually used it for, for their uh, royal jewelry. They used it for uh, decoration, all that kind of thing. So uh, there are these stele, which is basically like a giant tombstone. And uh, there, these steely begin to appear in, the, in certain locations in the Sinai where they, where they were uh, mining for turquoise. And uh, these inscriptions are, they have, it's not hieroglyphics and it's not Hebrew. It's sort of a, they, people, in fact, scholars do, don't even know what it is. It's sort of a cross. It's a Semitic language. But what Dr. Doug Petrovich has proposed is that these proto-Sinaitic inscriptions are actually where the Hebrew language actually came from. And that Hebrew is the first alphabetic language. And it actually uh, utilizes Egyptian hieroglyphics as well as syllabic uh, vowels, or not vowels, but consonants. So it's the first consonantal language in the world. And it's actually in the Sinai Peninsula. In fact, he pr has proposed, I think it's either he or, Duh or David Roll, he basically said that Joseph 
the is the one who was trained as an addict, he would have been the likely one to actually create this language. So one of the early criticisms of the uh, historical Exodus is that uh, Moses could not have written the Pentateuch because language is not written. And what this is, is a Pentateuch? Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Okay, so, and so the general understanding is that Moses wrote those first five books, but then that's come into question. So continue on. That's right. That's correct. And uh, so again, the consensus among most scholars today is that Moses did not write the Pentateuch, that it was probably cobbled together by multiple writers, very likely during the time of the Babylonian exile. So about the sixth or fifth century BC. Mm-hmm. So uh, five, 600 BC, there, Israelites were in Babylon and uh, they're trying to cobble together their history. And so uh, most scholars today would, would say that the Exodus is there might have been a few, you know, uh, Israelites that were there, but they sort of put all that together and created this story, this myth of their origins. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the, again, one of the early criticisms is that Moses could not have written, uh, written it because language, you know, hieroglyphics would have been a good language. But if this proto-Sinaitic inscriptions are, if it actually is proto-Hebrew, then Moses most certainly could have written it. Uh, written it. The interesting thing about that is that this language, this proto-Sinaitic language, it shows up in the Sinai Peninsula, and uh, it, then it also migrates up into Canaan in what scholars now call, they call it uh, proto-Canaanite or mm. Ugaritic. And so there are a lot of interesting words that cross over into this, uh, but people have reacted. The reason why scholars react against Petrovich's theories because most of them discount the historical exodus altogether. Yeah. Uh, but he translated some of these inscriptions, and guess what? He actually discovered the name of Moses on one. And um, it's called, uh, it's, I think it's called Sinai 161, I think. I'm not, don't quote me on that. But essentially, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it. Essentially, it says, um, our bound servitude lingered. These are the Israelites writing in this, this, down in this uh, turquoise mine. In other words, uh, we were slaves for a long time. And then Moses came and provoked astonishment. He provoked hmm. astonishment. That's the translation of this. And so that, those inscriptions disappear in the year 1446, and they don't show up again ever in Egypt. Hmm. So that is a, another, again, a very strong indication that the Israelites were there. They're mining turquoise. They're doing these projects. And then they go up into Canaan. We see, the, we see this in material culture with the foreign houses. We see this with the proto-Sinaitic inscriptions. Uh, hmm. And there's just a whole lot of other cool stuff as well. It's interesting because people that I've heard talk about, you know, Moses wasn't the author and, uh, and it was people in exile writing back and that that's why there would have been all this dramatic writing about um, enslavement and rescue and God providing because it's sort of the hopes and dreams of the people that are in exile, uh, you know, in Babylon. But I, that's never quite done it for me because those would have been the same uh, like sort of feelings and angst that people like Moses and his uh, compatriots would have been feeling. So it, it's not good enough reason. It's like, well, see how they sound so dramatic. They were really hurting. I'm like, yeah, so were the Hebrews that were enslaved. And so Moses right. was feeling it for them. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay. So you've said this name of the Pharaoh that you think is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Say it again, very slowly. It's Amenhotep II. Amenhotep like amen, like the word amen, amen, hotep, H-O-T-E-P. Amen, hotep, the second. Yeah. Amen, hotep. Okay. Perfect. And Hapshepsut. Goodness. That's, Couldn't these people just be Joe now. and Mike? Okay. So you think he was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And what does the evidence from his life tell us about that event? 
Okay, so in the, I uh, mentioned this earlier, um, this is an, uh, based on an article again by my friend and colleague at ABR, uh, Doug Petrovich, who is a paleographer and a language scholar. Uh, did his PhD at the University of Toronto in uh, Middle Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, just really, really brilliant guy. And um, I, don't, I don't agree with everything he says, so people think, well, you're just quoting Petrovich. But I think he's right on this. He wrote a really amazing article on the Journal of Ancient Egyptian Interconnections. And essentially, uh, in the ninth year of his reign, there was some major event that happened in his life that caused this massive upheaval. Now, this is, the, this is just on looking at him as the pharaoh. Let me say a word about his father, who was, the, again, the stepson of Hatshepsut, Tutmose III. Tutmose III was reared by his mother, or by his stepmother, Hatshepsut, and really set up to be a very successful pharaoh. In fact, he is called by historians the Napoleon of Egypt. Tutmose III was one of the most successful, militarily successful uh, pharaohs in all of Egypt. And so uh, he would give uh, he would give honor and praise to one of the main Egyptian gods named Amun Ra, and uh, and his son after he passed away his son of course uh, Amun Hotep II succeeded him, and by the way let me just say this as a side note Amun Hotep II was not the firstborn, so because we know of course in the plagues of the tenth plagues the all the firstborn of Egypt died he wasn't the firstborn he was the secondborn. So, so in any case, um, Amenhotep II, something happened in the ninth year of his reign. Um, all of his chariot forces, all of his military just essentially goes missing. Uh, they just disappear. Uh, he does, in it, early in his, the first nine years of his reign, he does seven or eight campaigns into the Levant. This is the area north of Egypt along the coast of the Mediterranean where Israel and, and, and Lebanon is today. And, uh, and then in that ninth year of his reign, he stops doing any more military campaigns. There's no more military campaigns for Amenhotep II. Why is that? Well, not only that, but he, there are actually inscriptions in the Theban tombs that actually show that he ordered the, get this now, he ordered all of the priests of Amun-Ra to be kicked out. In other words, they, something happened, the, the Egyptian gods failed. And yeah, so they he, did. He has this major, major upheaval of all the Egyptian gods. Mm -hmm which is just unprecedented because, uh, again, he doesn't say why, but again, you can sort of read between the lines and, and, and we know that, uh, that this, in fact, when you read the, in the internal text itself of the Exodus, this entire episode, I, although I absolutely believe it, it really happened, is also polemical in the sense that- What does that mean, polemical? Polemical means it's a, it's a, uh, a cosmic battle between God and the Egyptian gods. So in other words, it's a fight. So who is going to be the true God? Polemical meaning that, yeah, just a, a, a battle of who is, who is the true God. And, uh, and, and interestingly, all the plagues, all of the 10 plagues correspond to an Egyptian God. In fact, even, the, even when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and they throw down the staff and the staff becomes a snake, the snake is actually the very symbol of Egypt itself. And uh, it actually, it's like the American eagle symbolizes America. Well, the snake, the serpent, actually symbolizes one of the main gods of Egypt. In fact, if you ever see a pharaoh's crown, you see that he has a snake on his crown. That's because it's the, it's the very symbol of pharaonic power. And so this was a polemical sort of a slam, if you will, on, mm -hmm. uh, on Pharaoh and on Egypt. It's kind of like God's version of trash talk. He's like, exactly, you like that yeah. God? Watch this. What about that Watch one? This. Check this out. For, for all of them, right? I mean, each one of them can be kind of paired up with an Egyptian god. 
each one of the plagues that is it's sort of an That's answer right. to an egyptian god is that is that right That's exactly we, right. we should go back a little and explain like set up the stage of moses and the ten plagues in in case okay someone's not familiar with that but i mean so maybe ted like so because we, we, we're talking about Joseph and then and Moses and such. So let, can, can I ask this before we go there, though? Because there, there, I've heard some, like Peter Williams did, a, did a, a talk here in Houston on slavery and slavery in the Bible. And he makes the argument that in the Old Testament, the word is, wasn't always translated as slave. That's more of a modern, by modern, I mean, the last 150 years kind of choice that has been made. It was servant. And one of his arguments was that the Egyptians would have lived in a similar way as the Israelites, at least for most of the time the Israelites were there. You know, they would have been the subjects to the Pharaoh too. I mean, there was a hierarchy, you know, and a you know, few people lived very well and such. I don't know if you have any thoughts. I mean, I think we would all agree that by the time that Moses goes, they are pressed into hard labor in the building of, of, of bricks without straw and such, for example. But um, were they always slaves or is that something that comes later? And what exactly was Moses called to get them out of? Was it to get them out of slavery or was it just to get them out of Egypt or, or both? I think a little both. Um, and let me say also, one of the things I think we need to be careful about, and I'm an Old Testament prof. I've taught Old Testament for like 15 years. I love the Old Testament. One of the things we got to be careful about, I think this is a problem for modern audiences, is to do eisegesis. We want to read modern ideas and ideologies into an ancient text. And that's what we got to be really careful for. The text does address those issues, but first and foremost, context, context, context. What is the context? And uh, that, those are the three most important rules in hermeneutics, which is the principles of understanding how to interpret the scripture. And uh, before we... Uh, before we apply it to the modern situation, we first have to understand what did it mean to the original audience. And, and if, so if we look at the Pentateuch, again, the first five books of the Bible, they were written to the Israelites, essentially to tell them who they were, where they came from, and where they're about to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy, of course, is looking ahead as they're about to go in the promised land. So yes, they are an enslaved people. They came from uh, being slaves, although that's not their identity. Their identity was in Abraham. And the mm -hmm. point, I don't think the point necessarily was just slavery by itself. The point was, you remember when Moses uh, spoke to God uh, at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3? Uh, he says, when I go to the Israelites and I say to them, uh, what, what is your name? What should I tell them? And this is what God said. And then he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, mm -hmm. and the God of Jacob. This is my name forever. Well, he says, I am first. And then he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The point is, is that God is a God who keeps his word. And he made a promise to Abraham and a promise to make him into a great nation. And he, he's basically telling Moses, I have not forgotten my promise. Even though you're now enslaved, even though your situation looks hopeless, I have not forgotten my promise and I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to get you out of the situation and I'm going to save you. So, so uh, that's kind of how I would answer it. Um, Can I ask a theological question? Sure. Um, could it be that, I mean, was there a purpose for that time in Egypt, right? Because we're talking about a people that went from 12, 12 sons and their families to half a million, a million. Yep. Was that an incubation period? I mean, while the nation of Israel could grow, I mean, if they were to be a mighty nation. Absolutely. In fact, I think there's a passage in, um, it's either Isaiah or one of the prophets who basically God says, um, out of Egypt, I called my son. I think probably the, the where I want to take this next is let's 
let's build the story of what was happening with Moses and Pharaoh, because I think people have just little snippets in their head. Let my people go. Snakes, plagues. Um, and then I, I want to ask some questions that skeptics would ask. So you've got Moses. He's been told by the Lord, you can go. And then he's like, I can't. And then, of course, God says, take your brother Aaron. We could think maybe Moses had some kind of a stutter. Or, I don't know. He was shy about public speaking. But either way, Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh. They ask. Um, and there's like this pattern where they ask him and he has different reactions. Tell us a little bit about that and include this idea. I think a lot of people don't like when they read in the Bible that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The first, it's something like the first five interactions they had. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then you see the text change and it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I think people think, well, that's not fair. You know, Pharaoh didn't get a fair shake if God was doing the hardening. But there's more to that story when you know about Egyptian lore. So tell us a little bit about that. That's a great question, Sarah. And it, it goes back to something we were talking about earlier. We were talking about uh, this Egyptian concept known as Ma'at, M-A-A-T. It has to do with keeping order. And um, here in the Chicago area, it's now closed, but I, I lead trips to the Oriental Institute Museum, which is one of the greatest archaeological museums in the country. And uh, they have an amazing display of ancient Egypt. They have, like, when you walk into the Egyptian gallery, the very first thing you see is this, like, 17-foot-high uh, statue of King Tut. The, the real, it's not like a replica. It's the real thing. And it's remarkable. And there's a papyrus manuscript that's uh, based on something called the Egyptian Book of the Dead, uh, which is basically this ancient text that uh, for these Egyptian priests that mummified pharaohs, uh, essentially telling what's going to happen in the afterlife. So throughout that text of the, of the plague narratives and, and the hardening of the heart, uh, in the Hebrew text, actually what it seems to indicate, uh, according to the Hebrew language, and the, the word hardening indicates, uh, and the word, it has the connotes more heaviness, like weight, 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 and it gets heavier and heavier. So as the plagues continue, the heart gets heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. And so uh, when you read this as an English reader, you're, you're, you know, your understanding is that uh, the Pharaoh is just being hard headed, you know, and that's correct. It's generally correct. Uh, but, a, but how would an Egyptian have understood this? If Moses, according to Acts chapter seven, uh, you remember Stephen, when he was talking to Sanhedrin, he basically said that Moses was trained in all the, uh, he was educated in all the manners of the Egyptians. And it was a man of power word indeed. So if Moses understood Egyptian culture, when he's writing about uh, the plagues and he's writing about, again, remember, he's writing this to Israelites. And I believe, as well as some of my colleagues, that Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they were almost pagan, just almost completely pagan. In other words, they had been in Egypt for 430 years. Somebody said it took God one day to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took like years to get Egypt out of Israel. Mm -hmm. And that's a, kind of a preacher thing to say, but, uh, but it's, there's a lot of truth in that. And so, uh, so the point was the hardening of the heart. What does this have to do with the Egyptian uh, history and culture? It had to do with uh, something that went on in the afterlife. What happened was the Pharaoh's heart would be actually weighed in a scale balance by an Egyptian god named Anubis. And I actually have a little statue of Anubis right here. I mean, who doesn't? Yes. <laughs> so... Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, so what happened in this papyrus manuscript, you can actually see this. There's this scene in the heavens, in the, in the spiritual realm, in which the Pharaoh's heart is going to be placed in a balance against this feather of ma'at, or truth. And so Anubis is overseeing this whole scene, and if the heart is heavy, then it would counterbalance the feather of truth, and the Pharaoh's heart and the Pharaoh's soul would be condemned to wander in the afterlife. 
And so mm-hmm. it was sort of a, like, you don't want to harden your heart. And it's like, uh, essentially kind of what the text is saying is that even though, uh, even in your own religion, you're not acting true to what you should be doing. And it was also a warning to the Israelites not to harden their hearts as well. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in the Bible about hearts of stone and hearts of flesh, but there's another kind of icky part of this, right? With the scarab beetle, can you that that yeah, weaves into absolutely. here somehow, right? Absolutely. So one of the, the one of the ways in which they would protect uh, in the, when we find when well, not me, I'm not an Egyptologist, but but when when archaeologists go to e- uh, Egypt and they find mummies, what they find in the mummy wrappings uh, is they find these things called scarabs, and this is a picture of one right here, and on the back of it. Actually, you can see right there, it's actually a, uh, a spell from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And the scarab would actually be placed and wrapped over the heart to keep the heart soft in the afterlife. So uh, there, were, there were also uh, another, a scarab, by the way, is a little beetle uh, that's found in Egypt. It's actually a dung beetle, to be truthful. <laughs> and uh, the Egyptians believed that it symbolized uh, rejuvenation, eternal life, uh, and the afterlife. Uh, you see this a lot on Egyptian symbolism, but you see these wrapped up in mummies all the time. And there's another thing called a heart amulet as well. And we see these all throughout Egypt. In fact, uh, we find these scarabs in Israel after the conquest, during in the conquest cities. And one of the cities that I, I've excavated at a place called Kerbet el Makader in northern, well, actually it's in nine miles north of Jerusalem. We believe that that site is the site of Ai, the second city the Israelites destroyed after the conquest. They actually found a scarab and guess where, guess whose reign it came from? Tutmose the third. So, uh, so we believe that very likely an Israelite had one of these scarabs in his pocket and it fell out during the, when, they, when they attacked the city. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So we've got Moses and Aaron, they're going to the Pharaoh. They're asking him over and over, let my people go. He says, no, no, no. Then he says, yes. Then he says, no, on and on this goes. Then there's these terrible plagues that happen as a way of trying to, of God's way of trying to, you know, move Pharaoh forward and show his power. Finally, of course, Moses does escape with the Israelites and then Pharaoh changes his mind again and is the, the, the great chase is happening. And this is where I think a lot of skeptics are going to come in and say, well, you can't believe that crazy story because this is where that iconic scene happens where they're crossing uh, the Red Sea and there's no way to do it. And he, you know, Moses puts his staff down and the sea is split in two and it says there's walls of water on either side. And then you have millions of Hebrews crossing through and then of course the walls come crashing down on the the chasing pharaoh's military and their chariots so i think people have a couple questions about this i would love to hear your answer to one people will say oh it wasn't really a big ocean kind of sea it was really that's just been misinterpreted it was really the sea of reeds so it wouldn't have been real hard of course i've never understood that because i don't know how it would have killed the chariot i mean the the fair uh excuse me military behind them but anyway and the second is if that really did happen, why have we not found evidence like pieces of chariots or bones of the Egyptians at the bottom of what we think is the Red Sea? So can you address both of those? Yeah, uh, let me just start with the whole, my answer by saying this. Uh, let's go to the text. Um, the, the staff, when Moses, uh, when he, the confrontation between Moses and Aaron, well, Moses and Aaron, they're there with the staff before Pharaoh. And remember the staff, the same staff that turns into the snake, Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the language of the text says that Moses' staff consumed the serpents of the Pharaoh. And when he comes to the Red Sea, he holds the staff up. It's the same exact staff. And it says, 
and and the and the ocean consumed the pharaoh's armies Ooh. so the author's trying to make a connection between yeah. the staff and the serpent cons- consuming god's consuming the pharaoh's army so there's a lot of cool literary stuff going on there as mm-hmm. well uh, but there's two basic theories about the crossing of the either reed sea sea of reeds or uh, the uh, Red Sea. And even among the Red Sea proponents, there are two possible crossing locations. So really there's three. So one of them is up in the Nile Delta. We, we mentioned Avaris, and uh, there's a, a two of scholars I, I greatly admire, uh, hold to that view. Uh, uh, James Hoffmeyer and Dr. Bryant Wood uh, believe there are, there are a series of uh, channels and canals that uh, actually served as a border. There were border fortresses uh, of Egypt and so uh, as the Israelites would have been uh, going zigzagging out of Egypt, they crossed over one of these canals and they believe it's at that one of those, there was actually a big lake. It's now extinct because of the damming of the area. Uh, but they believe in that lake, there was this huge sort of marshy lake with reeds that that sort of the wind came and part of that. And that's how they got out. Um, the, the problem that I have with that, again, uh, the, I don't think it's an easy solution no matter what you look at, no matter what view you look at is that when the Israelites left, they were out of Egypt. In other words, when they crossed the Red Sea, they were now in safe, they were now in safe area. But if they had crossed over in, in the Nile Goshen area, they still were in Egypt because the Sinai actually had Egyptian garrisons in the Sinai. So I'm not sure how that actually makes them safe mm-hmm. as they cross over because the Pharaoh's army still could have chased them in the Sinai Peninsula because they were actually excavating turquoise in the Sinai Peninsula. Hmm. So now the two other locations. So if you look at the Sinai, it's basically a triangle. And on one side is the um, Gulf of Suez, and the Suez Canal now m- runs north there, connects the Mediterranean. And on the other side, near Saudi Arabia, there's called, it's called the Gulf of Aqaba. And in the middle of that Gulf of Aqaba, there is a, two possible crossing spots of the Israelites. One is called Nueva, N-U-W-E-B-A, uh, and it crosses over into present-day Saudi Arabia. That's, the where, that's where it is. And ent- interestingly, that is where Midian was. And we know that, that Moses was a, basically with the Midianites, and he actually talked to God on Mount Sinai in the Midianite territory. So that's what makes me sort of lean toward the Nueva crossing spot. And uh, there's actually uh, in the Red Sea or in the Gulf of Aqaba, there's actually a rise right at that location, right at Nueva on the Sinai side, going all the way over into the Saudi side. And there's an interesting mountain there now that people have identified as a possible location of Mount Sinai is called Jabal Laws, and the uh, Bedouins call it the Mountain of Moses, and it's burned on top, and um, several years ago, they actually, on the uh, Saudi side, they actually discovered a column uh, that had a sort of like a, a marker of where that spot would have been, so uh, they've since taken it down. Uh, the other location is just to the south of that, uh, called the Straits of Tehran, so it's where it's right on the very, very southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, and there's a lot of coral there. Uh, now, to answer your question, Sarah, there uh, on the Nueva site, there's actually been a lot of diving done at that site where this crossing spot potentially was, and there are coral formations. And I'm a little skeptical about this, but there are some coral formations that some people have said are actually the the uh, contain the remains of some of the chariot wheels of the pharaohs on uh, chariots because coral only grows on uh, something else. And that whole area is sandy. And so these, these coral formations come up like a shaft and then there's like a wheel on top and that's the, it's made out of coral. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but if you've ever seen pat- the newest patterns of evidence actually talks about that. 
of hmm. the crossing, potential crossing spots. That is interesting. It sounds, I'm not ready to say yes to it yet. I need to like see it for myself or something. Yeah. One thing I want to be sure to get to before we finish, and we've got a few minutes left, but because I just think it's so fascinating. It doesn't really have to do with the Exodus, but it does have to do with Egyptology. And that's something you know a lot about is um, you helped me understand that there's kind of a deeper meaning to uh, one of the 10 commandments, which of course Moses uh, brought down from the mountain you were just talking about to the Israelites. Um, the commandment about not taking the Lord's name in vain. I think a lot of people think that that's just saying, don't say OMG or use Jesus, you know, when you're not really praying to him which I don't think we should do, but, uh, it's, it goes deeper than that. And it would have had a lot of a different meaning to the Israelites that have just come out of Egypt. Tell us a little bit about that. And I know you have your little statue ready to go again. So, <laughs> yeah. So it goes back to, uh, again, let's just think for a second. Uh, let me just put some context out there. So, um, and I'm going to put you guys on the spot. How old is America? We were 17. We're I'm, I'm horrible in math. Math is hard for me. It's 2020, and it's now, and America was born in 1776. So how old are we? 244. 244. Okay. So America's been around for 244 years. For context, the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years. Mm -hmm. so, so that gives you a little context to know. Mm -hmm. They would have really been influenced by Egyptian thinking, mm -hmm. pagan ideas, pagan ways of thinking. And so uh, all of the commandments, in fact, uh, throughout uh, the early uh, New Te Old Testament, God is trying to tell them again and again, you cannot worship me the way that you worship these Egyptian gods. The first two commandments actually have to do with no graven images, uh, don't make any images, uh, don't take God's name in vain. That's the third one. And uh, so years ago, what actually what just kind of dawned on me is I was actually teaching the Old Testament survey, and I was going over my class notes, and I was thinking, that just doesn't make sense. Like, because how could they have taken God's name in vain? Because Moses even had to say in Exodus three, when I go to the Israelites, when I tell them what your name is, you know, I didn't even know what your, what your name is. So how could they have taken God's name in vain if they didn't even know who he was? What did that, what did taking God's name in vain mean to the, to the Israelites uh, being in Egypt for 400 years? What I've since discovered is re something really fascinating. And it's actually makes the commandment even more, uh, sharp, even for us as well. And that is that in, in ancient Egypt, uh, there were, of course, the main gods like Amun-Ra and Horus and Isis, and you know all the Egyptian gods. And the other one was um, Anubis. This is Anubis right here, the little uh, jackal-headed god. He's the god of the underworld, the god of the dead. And uh, every Egyptian household would have a household god. Like you would have uh, your little shrine in which you would place your god in your little shelf, and you would actually light incense to it, or you'd pray to it, you'd give a little offering to it, something like that. But one of the things they would do is they would actually, they, the god had a magic name. And they, if, if uh, they really wanted to get God's attention, they would, what, what is called, invoke the god's special name. And the God had to do whatever they said. And so I think what the third commandment is saying is that God is saying to the Israelites, listen, remember what you did in Egypt with these gods? I, I don't answer like that. You do not take my name. I, you just can't say Yahweh and I do what you want. And so I think it's a very powerful thing for a warning for us because we often think that if we somehow, you know, we, we're trying to manipulate God to, to get our will. 
And so any, any way that we try to manipulate God by saying a special name or by, you know, falling down and trying to throw a temper tantrum, whatever, that's almost <laughs> taking God's name in vain. So that I think it's is fascinating. And man, we could just like teach a whole theology lesson on that, but we are running out of time. So I'm glad we got that in there. Um, if people want to know more about all this kind of stuff, I just really encourage you to go check out epicarchaeology.org. All kinds of fascinating articles, pictures of mummies and all really cool stuff. Um, but we've got to go. So again, uh, as always, we encourage you between now and when we see you next to uh, question freely, think deeply and disagree as needed. Mm-hmm.